Welcome to Diverse, the podcast of the Society of Women Engineers. SWE supports the advancement of women in engineering and technology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and SWE's blog all together at altogether.swe.org. Looking for more information and data on women in engineering? Head over to research.swe.org and review the groundbreaking research that SWE has been conducting. SWE's research efforts include reporting on women of color in engineering and how community colleges may play a role in getting more women to graduate with engineering degrees. You can also check out the annual SWE Literature Review in SWE Magazine's State of Women in Engineering issue. Hello, I am Bralade Koroye Emenandro. I'm the African-American Affinity Group Lead of the Society of Women Engineers. I'm also a technical service and development engineer with Dow Incorporated. You are welcome to SWE's diverse podcast series. Please remember to add this podcast to your iTunes and like or follow us on social media. You can visit SWE.org for more details. It's Black History Month of February, really special for us. And I'm joined today by Sharita Caesar, Senior Vice President at Comcast and the first African-American president of the prestigious Society of Women Engineers, FY2000. So that's exactly 20 years ago, which is uh, really phenomenal. Thank you for joining us today, Sharita. Thank you. Yeah. So Sharita, just jumping right into it, how do you feel? Like 20 years ago, you were president. How much has changed since that? How's it been for you? Well, lots changed. I, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm very pleased to see a lot of our young women considering engineering, considering software development. Uh, we see it in our, in our company at Comcast. Um, and, and I'm actually seeing women start to, young women particularly, start to take the lead in innovation, um, you know, through the kind of software that they develop, you know, some of them are very young, even, you know, starting their own businesses. So I'm, I'm really excited to, to see the energy and the, the power and strength of these young women and participating in technology. Awesome. Well, thank you. And just jumping right into um, that, what, what initially sparked, inspired your interest in STEM starting out as a young child? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I had the benefit of going to a, a high school that was a, a technical prep high school, Limbloom um, Technical High School. And, and it was a college preparatory high school that focused on all sciences, you know, the math and the sciences. So I, I had the benefit of really cool math teachers and science teachers that, you know, really kind of encouraged me. And, you know, I had a great deal of interest. Uh, so the love of physics, um, you know, manifested itself in the ability to actually participate in, in early uh, programs around engineering. One was called Early ID at the Illinois Institute of Technology. And that program enabled me to build my first rocket, you know, from a, uh, <laughs> from the kit of parts and to be able to predict the uh, wow. physics around distance, velocity and acceleration. Um, you know, it was really exciting. Of course, it, it, it helped it. You know, we had uh, a TV camera crew there, too. So it wow, was exciting. That sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, my that mom was proud. Amazing. My mom was really proud. I made my first television <laughs> debut. 
<laughs> and um, just a shout out to that high school. What's the name again? Lynn Bloom Technical High School. They're a charter school now. We actually celebrated 100 years uh, last summer where a number of our classmates got together on the south side of Chicago. Oh, wow. And so That's you know, phenomenal. A century of, of school, uh, you know, focused on advancing, you know, lots of uh, kids through college. Great. So great things come out the come out of the south side of Chicago. Absolutely, and I, I think the, the the rocket reference is really cool too because um, within Comcast, I'm an executive sponsor of our first robotics initiative, which we've been doing for the last ten years, and uh, we're sponsoring over forty teams. We have you know close to a hundred mentors of engineers that are helping high schoolers build uh, robots to compete. And so that, that kicks off in uh, April where we're, we're both in Houston and in Detroit with, you know, really global championships around these, um, these robots. Yeah. And this year is a, a theme of Star Wars, you know, so really excited to, to see us actually be a sponsor of getting these kind of high school kids excited about technology and learning skills that'll definitely help them in the future in the college and, and, and the jobs they seek. That is great. And one of the key things they say about children is that it is in those early years, in the activities they do, in the environment they are, just that rich learning is what sparks that early interest in STEM. Would you agree? How how important would you say it is to have these um, STEM exposure from really early? I I would agree. I I think, you know, technology has enabled it to happen as as soon as a child can pick up an iPad or a smartphone. You know, I watch my my niece who lives in Atlanta and she, you know, doesn't have any special skills in terms of learning some of the applications, but she sure can grab her mom's smartphone and get an application started and begin to play games and learn lessons. I I think the world has changed dramatically in exposure of technology to kids at a very early age. Great. Well, thank you for sharing that. And you you did tell us some of the interests, some of the things you're currently working on, some of the um, both um, reaching out to kids as well as in your industry. So could you just briefly walk us through your academic and professional accomplishments? Sure. I um, had the benefit, as I said earlier, to participate in uh, college preparatory um, activities from high school. And that, that led me to Illinois Institute of Technology, where I have my bachelor's of science and master's of science in mechanical engineering. Uh, early on, you know, I've been very interested in, you know, how we take science and apply it. So from an engineering perspective, it, I was kind of destined to be in the problem solving space. You know, more so because you get the opportunity to see the the fruits of science manifest quickly into innovation. And, you know, much different than, you know, mechanical engineers working on some of the the bigger hardware uh, issues of, you know, things you think about of trains and buildings, you know, necessarily maybe even uh, cars. I, I was interested in the application of mechanical engineering and electronics. And I had the opportunity to work at Northrop Defense Systems Division early on um, with, you know, very high clearance, high secret clearance to work on packaging electronics from a mechanical perspective. That means, you know, putting 
not only electrical, you know, impulses through components, but putting it on printed circuit boards. And from those circuit boards, being able to package it and protect it for, you know, the, you know, bigger systems like, you know, planes, you know, like the B-1 bomber or the stealth bomber and being able to package high voltage uh, devices. I even went so far as to make my master's uh, thesis around the connectivity of uh, being able to manage power supplies through various materials. So, you know, mechanical engineering, you know, coupled with electrical engineering was definitely the, the opportunity I took on. And, you know, I moved from Northrop Defense Systems to Motorola. And Motorola gave me a lot of experiences around packaging technology. So, you know, I looked at my mechanical background as the ability to manifest electrical circuits into real hardware. And that turned out to, to help us with pagers. It helped us with telephones. And, you know, my involvement was, you know, going not just in the design, but manufacturing and ultimately servicing, um, you know, pagers and cell phones back in the day. When I left there, I realized that uh, the evolution of technology was going to continue in communications. And, you know, I came just at the right time. In 1996, the Telecom Act, you know, was passed and it opened up competition uh, for cable providers and for them to offer different services. So I had the opportunity to participate in Scientific Atlanta, which was a, a major vendor of our cable uh, set-top box, which is the experience of getting, you know, TV into homes. And then from there, you know, actually managing some of those systems uh, within Charter, managing, uh, you know, the delivery of video, data, and voice as a general manager uh, in Georgia, in Atlanta, Georgia, and then actually being able to participate in Comcast, you know, from, uh, you know, engineering perspective and, you know, really launching, you know, new technologies, which was kind of fun because I, I was involved in the first um, cross engineering, you know, platform, which was universal caller ID, which is very simply being able to see a call show up on your television and, you know, show up in your PC. And that began a whole journey of, you know, seeing cross-platform applications start to immerse into, you know, our X1 platform. And, you know, now it's really cool because you can see our, you know, the ability to, you know, with voice commands experience, you know, the uh, moving to a channel of your choice, you know, talking to your TV through your remote. So, What's been really cool about the journey is that it's always changing. It's always evolving. Um, it makes the job very interesting. I mean, even today, you know, my team is experiencing uh, technology on one side because we manage the enterprise laboratories of being able to validate form, fit, and function and interoperability of all technologies through our labs. And then, you know, another part of my team is, you know, worried about the, you know, platform deployment of those technologies into the facilities uh, across, you know, our network. And so it's been really a journey of, you know, seeing not only the, the technologies from a development standpoint and from a quality standpoint, but from a deployment standpoint uh, to actually, you know, see it manifest in homes gives me, you know, a whole lot of pride. And I, I think Comcast is probably the company, you know, on the planet that, you know, has the largest, you know, plant as the, the most interactions with our customers and, you know, the most reliable product that, um, you know, most of the vendors, you know, just, you know, we, we've gone past 
what we started with in, in the last 20 years. And so really exciting times for us all. Great. You know, what you mentioned just took me back. I, I could just see my toddler saying, picking up the remote and saying tube into the remote. That's the way she says YouTube, <laughs> because that's what we do. I would, just looking back, I would never have thought we would have made all of these advancements, you know, things that people didn't even really think of. And many times people see executives, but they don't really realize that these were the people who started the innovation themselves and started seeing some of these intersections and doing the research and the development required to establish these applications. How has it been for you moving from your individual contributor, innovator, primary innovator role to being an executive overseeing, you know, 1,600 facilities all around Comcast? And yeah, how's that been? That's an important transition for, for any leader. You know, and I, in reflection, I think my, my first role going from individual contributor to manager was, was a difficult one because you still want to, you know, manage and control uh, every aspect of it. Uh, but I learned and I, I had a great mentor and he's no longer with us, Daryl Osberg. And uh, when I was at Northrop Defense Systems Division, who, who really cultivated, you know, my management and leadership uh, chops. He, he basically gave me the insight about, you know, how much more could be done through people than trying to do it all myself. And I, I think that was the, the, the big lesson in that transition from individual contributor to leader. And I think that's something that stayed with me, you know, throughout my entire career is that, you know, as a leader, you know, I get the privilege of, you know, working with individuals that, you know, have so much potential to offer the company. And, you know, I view my job as how do I unleash that potential in their day-to-day -day work so that we can accomplish more, you know, be more efficient, you know, be able to, you know, just truly, you know, have an impact on the business and, you know, making sure the results that uh, not only are we asked to do, but that we, we overachieve on those because we're not, you know, leaning in and micromanaging and controlling every aspect of what they're doing. You know, bringing that team to the to the workplace and having the ability to inspire them to greatness is is what makes my job, you know, now especially in a leadership role, very exciting. We can accomplish so much more. But that first uh, that first transition was really tough. <laughs> Letting go <laughs> was really really tough. So it's not easy. I can't imagine, but I know, of course, all of the all those gave you the. Um, foundation, the understanding to be able to support the development and innovation at from your big picture strategy level. <laughs> yeah. All right. So m moving on, I want to ask about the Society of Women Engineers, right? So why did you get involved with SWE and why should anyone? Well, I, you know, to be very candid, uh, there wasn't a lot of women at the time when I was uh, coming out of, of high school and even college that was sitting, you know, in positions of, of engineering. So SWE, even in the college, we, we, we got together because of community. Um, we, we got together to share and, and support each other. And, you know, one of the, the things, you know, as I mentioned, that transition from individual contributor to leader, SWE gave me a benefit of experiencing leadership roles that I would learn how to, you know, engage and interact with others 
that I didn't have necessarily in, in the work environment at the time. So I got to practice my leadership chops with Sui. And I, I, I re- recall even, you know, goals that I set for myself that as I rose in leadership within SWE, I would rise in leadership within the companies that I was working. And I, I, I did a pretty good job of, you know, as I got to director roles, as I got on the board, as I became president, I saw my ability to translate, you know, my skills of leading people in a voluntary organization, uh, very impactful. It's allowed me to influence and you know, get people to, you know, and get engaged and, and do things that they don't necessarily have to work for me. And so, you know, I, I reflect on those experiences and I encourage a lot of my mentees to get involved in associations and organizations where they can get that kind of practice without, you know, having an impact on their paycheck. So of course. <laughs> it's, 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 it's a very powerful community. And for me, SWE was powerful in college. It was powerful as a professional, you know, I got to have an impact on career guidance and continuing development. Um, you know, I, I, my first lesson of uh, dealing with people that, you know, were maybe difficult or couldn't get the job done was in the SWE environment. I had to fire a volunteer, you know, before I had to fire somebody in a work environment. So, you know, I learned a lot in that organization that uh, helped me hone my strategy chops. It helped me all my people leader skills, um, and, and, you know, I leverage all that learning today. So would you say it was pivotal that you were the first African-American suite president? Was it something you ever thought about? I had definitely had aspirations as I got involved in the organization. Um, and at that time, we, we probably had about 15,000 members across the, uh, the, the country that were part of SWE. And again, looking even at that organization, you know, I, I recognize there were opportunities for diversity and inclusion of, you know, women of color. And so, you know, representing that and, you know, having that opportunity to, you know, lead others through that, you know, I felt an honor and a privilege to be able to be the first. Um, you know, of course, you know, I had to put my, um, you know, span on how that was being led, but I, I was the first. And if those, because it was interesting it, for me at the time, it was also the 50th, you know, birthday of, of SWE as an organization. So I made sure in every visit to every college campus and every regional visit that I made, I sung Stevie Wonder's, you know, <laughs> happy birthday and provided a cake at every meeting. <laughs> That is fabulous. <laughs> and, Way to go and for of course, that, that was that's what I was known for celebrating, you know, the birthday of Sui in a very unique way. Yeah, and that is really what it means to bring your whole self to the table, doing things in the way that is uniquely you, that is culturally you, and also that brings value to the um, ultimate objective of the organization you support. So thank you for sharing that. So going along those lines, what professional advice, what advice generally, professional development, um, self-confidence, what advice would you give to a woman of color that is either an engineering student or a professional right now? And so, you know, I, and, and this can apply to all women, but if you're a woman of color, you know, particularly, we have to Make sure we recognize, first of all, we will always be seen. So it's no getting around that in any room, um, you know, despite the fact that, 
you know, there's not going to be a whole lot of women, you know, women of color will always be seen. So represent uh, your discipline, understand your domain knowledge, uh, you know, deliver on the results. Those are just table stakes. And so, you know, in terms of uh, being part of, you know, any organization, you, you want to have, you know, and, and be known for a brand of being a contributor, you know, being an influencer, uh, being able to be easy to work with in teams and to be inclusive. So we, we have to work a lot harder than most in that regard, just because yeah. we stand out. And so, you know, I encourage engagement of, you know, programs within the companies. For example, in, in Comcast, we have a, a, a women's uh, employee resource group. And as a subset of that, we have uh, a Comcast, you know, tech women's group. So engagement in the workplace programs, uh, that kind of community, you know, having a, a, you know, a set of resources across the company to you know, reach out to from a mentoring uh, part, or even to gain work experience with shadowing programs. Uh, you, you're going to be already visible, so you know why don't why don't you be the best in being visible as as part of the table stakes there and and represent well. Um, you know, you can't afford to not because uh, of that. Unfortunately, you know whether we like it or not, the if there's unconscious bias, it's going to you know show up. Uh, in those environments that we are working in. Thank you for sharing that. We will always be seen. <laughs> That's not something I will forget in a hurry. And that actually gives a good connotation to that phrase, because if you're already on a pedestal, why not shine, right? <laughs> exactly <Yeah>. right. Exactly <laughs> right. And so you you spoke a little bit about what Comcast is doing with employee resource groups, my company, Dow, as well. We have women's resource group. We have minority resource groups. What would you say is the place of that in, com, com, in, in the industry right now? How can others in the industry create a more diverse, inclusive environment within their organizations, within their teams at work? Yeah, I, I have to tell you, I, I mean, I couldn't be more proud of Comcast and, you know, setting and the chief diversity officer, David Cohen, many years ago set an aspirational goal of, you know, having the makeup of our employee base be 33% people of color and 50% uh, women. And every year, you know, being able to, you know, make, um, you know, progress toward that end was through, you know, having employee resource groups, was through having a joint diversity council that was outside our industry, provide wisdom and advice, uh, and being able to support those groups, not only with, you know, the recognition of, of establishment, but having, you know, people like myself be champions, executive sponsors to help support the strategies of that group, help the programmatic uh planning, you know, that uh, at least review and support of that to make sure that we're addressing that community and that community's needs and then having a voice for them to give us feedback about how we can make ourselves even better. So I think to the extent that a company is supporting a diversity and inclusion type and set of initiatives, they need to have a, a voice for their diverse groups and to support those groups and the kind of programmatic activities that would help foster a great place to work. 
And, you know, for us, the, the overlay over all that is that, you know, we believe in an employee net promoter score, which is a score from zero to uh, 10 that represents with 10 being the, the best, you know, the level of, of, you know, activity, support, you know, promotion of our ability to deliver on the workplace or deliver on motivation or deliver and even engagement and how we gather together called huddles or helping with innovation called, you know, elevation. So we use the employee net promoter score as a leadership team to get feedback from our employees when that scoring of, you know, are they promoters or not as a simple, you know, zero to 10 type score to understand how well we're doing. So having, you know, not just employee resource groups, but having programmatic activities of engagement, having some way to get feedback to the leadership to help you know, drive motivation, drive an improved workplace to have employees feel like, you know, they're in an environment that fosters their contribution is, is a key. It's a must, you know, for companies these days. And, you know, we're seeing a trend that, you know, this is, this is becoming the norm, you know, for most industries that are doing anything around, you know, net promoter score. What kinds of obstacles have you faced as a woman in engineering and how did you overcome them? You've had over 36 years in industry now. I know that where we are now isn't where we used to be. And even where we are now still needs some improvement. So what kinds of obstacles have you faced? And if you could just talk about one or a couple. Yeah. Um, yes, they have been obstacles. And I, I think, you know, some of them, again, are not just related to women of color, but women in general. And it, it's one of, of being heard. Um, and I still see this amongst, um, you know, our, our youth today, our, our women today in some of these meetings, they, they don't have confidence, so they don't raise their voice to be heard, uh, but they got great ideas. And oftentimes they'll, you know, quietly offer opinions and their idea get hijacked, you know, almost word for word in some cases. So I feel like women tend to shy away from, you know, having uh, a voice for, you know, for a lot of reasons. Maybe they don't feel confident or not. Um, but I offer, and, and, and I've done this myself, is that, you know, we, we tend to get, um, unfortunately in meetings, a little circular. So I call, you know, get the power of the pen. So it, as you are hearing all these different ideas and you find that we're swirling, you know, a woman can easily stand up in a meeting um, or even if they are standing up, grab the pen. There's always a whiteboard or there's some paper around to be able to distill the conversation down to some salient points. And I think that, you know, enables their voice to be heard, their leadership to show, and they can provide, you know, direction, you know, to the team that they're working on. Um, a lot of times women just don't know their value and, you know, oftentimes they, and, and the obstacles that they face is oftentimes you need a mentor to just, you know, spend some time with and talk through whatever concerns you have. And there's instruments, you know, that are out there that give you, you know, behavior information. Um, you know, we, we think of uh, tools like insights or tools like um, Myers-Briggs that kind of tell you what kind of person pro personality profile you have. 
But oftentimes the biggest obstacle for women is sometimes they don't feel like they have to be extroverts. You know, um, you know, if they're an introvert, they, they tend to shy away from a lot, you know, making a lot of noise and, you know, being able to express themselves. Maybe do it in an introverted way. And oftentimes that gets clobbered in meetings. So as I think about myself, it took me a while. I'm, I'm unfortunately, for being an introvert um, at home and an extrovert at work. So I had to work on, you know, getting to delivering presentations and being effective in communicating, you know, my thoughts. And I got the benefit of, uh, my thesis advisor, Lois Graham, who was assistant, uh, you know, dean of, of Illinois Institute of Technology's mechanical engineering, she says, teach. So yeah, I overcame my fear of presentation by teaching. And through teaching, not only do you have to learn material, but you have to have a voice and an opinion about what the material was. So I ended up being an adjunct professor for Illinois Institute of Technology teaching design of machine elements part-time because that helped prepare me for my thesis advising. And, you know, I found that teaching, even as a leader, you know, the best leaders teach. And so that stuck with me. That's part of my, you know, toolkit that I've, I've used to be able to express, you know, how we can make a difference in, you know, having the, the learning of the whole team, you know, come up. So, you know, and now I've put a different spin on it because I'm I'm teaching and coaching. So it's helped me to, um, you know, communicate and help guide, you know, the resources that, you know, I'm charged with. Thank you for sharing all of those things. And like, literally, I was taking notes as you were speaking because there's so much wisdom in what you were just saying. And that actually segues perfectly into the next question, which is, your work-life balance. You know, it's difficult as a working woman, especially in a leadership role like yourself, to find a healthy work-life um, integration, like we call it these days, because it's never completely 50-50. Yes. So what do you do to unwind and disconnect from your professional responsibilities? Well, I, um, I agree with you. It's more integration. <laughs> um, and I found, you know, the work environment can be extremely stressful. Um, and, and a lot of times you do have to, you know, come with tools to help um, you really kind of, you know, demark the difference between the two so you can enjoy, you know, the fruits of all that labor of working hard and, and enjoying your family. So for me, um, I've, I've really focused on mindfulness. And to the extent that, you know, right now I'm on the board of directors for a nonprofit called Inner Explorer. And we spent a lot of time on, and of course, you know, there's technology involved. There's a, a technology platform of audio content that's used now for a million kids across the U.S. in their schools to help them get 10 minutes of mindfulness um, just to get them ready to learn. And, and I feel for me personally, you know, mindfulness every day, 10 minutes of that or meditation helps me, you know, really demark between work and, and home and get ready for enjoying my family. So I'm not bringing the stresses of work into those engagements. You know, we travel 
Um, we enjoy each other's company. We, we cook. We have a good time. I, I really love my family, and I really enjoy being with them. So, you know, for me, it's about, you know, that kind of, you know, settling of separation so that, you know, I could truly be ready for family through mindfulness. And then the other piece of it is, you know, learning. Um, I'm, a, I'm a life learner. So there's, so I love Same here. <laughs> Literally, I listen to one every day. I love great listening love to, you know, <laughs> I like to say, yeah, it's just, there you go. I, I, I truly enjoy them and, um, they lead me down interesting paths of, you know, learning more about a particular subject. I found a, another group called uh, mind Valley that has interesting information about the human condition. And, and this is, this is all, you know, very manageable amounts of time, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, you know, a day of engagement to, to just switch, um, you know, and integrate more about learning from a human perspective, uh, different than learning to execute what you need to from work. Great. So lifelong learning skills. So um, talking about SWE, so from what you said this year, SWE would probably be starting its 70th year's journey. What, how, what advice would you give to SWE to be more effective, to be more inclusive, more um, diverse as an as a organization for women? I, I think um, in the technology, it's interesting because 50 years ago, we were just, uh, doing a better accreditation on computer science. So imagine if we didn't, you know, assume membership privileges for computer science. <laughs> but we went through that, and then we had to go through that discussion of, you know, saying computer science was an engineering curriculum, and you know, we're a better accredited, so we needed to include them in, for membership. I um, I say that to say the world is changing so dramatically. The skills of engineering and our Thinking about members that are part of that is is growing by leaps and bounds. And, and I'll give you an example. You know, Tesla is now recruiting for uh, employees, and they don't even have to graduate from high school. And you've seen that with Facebook. You've seen that with Google because the learning and platform and learning itself has changed so dramatically from you know class book to being able to even afford to go to college, you know, in terms of the price that you'll end up paying and potentially the loans that you'll have a six-figure loan after you graduate, to having free content of learning available to you on, you know, the internet, you know, um, ed.x, having access to MIT and Stanford and Harvard type classes uh, even within Comcast, we have uh, lynda.com for on-demand learning uh, about a variety of subjects. You know, we partner with LinkedIn uh, with their learning uh, environment. So, you know, from my perspective, SWE needs to address inclusiveness of all types of women who are interested in technology. And while the standards of, you know, membership may be related to college grads or not, there are very smart, you know, individuals that are going to these companies that may not have finished college, but because they're so brilliant in how they're coding or their contribution, they're being considered for employment. We don't want to miss out, 
with that kind of potential. We don't want to mess out with that kind of innovation. So from my perspective, Sweeney needs to be more inclusive of all technologies that are starting to emerge. And some of them aren't your standard anymore of electrical and mechanical and chemical. I mean, there are all kinds of morphing that's happening regarding technology contribution. So I would say, you know, open the doors, be inclusive of, you know, all women that are interested in not just engineering, but technology and the contributions of technology that would afford the opportunity for community and engagement and potentially mentoring. I mean, these are these are key. Thank you for mentioning that. It's interesting that you say that most um, phenomenal innovations come from that intersection of um, disciplines, you know, the traditional disciplines like we used to call it or like we still call it, but there's no engineer almost that doesn't work in a team. And that's something we have to begin giving value to. Something else you mentioned about all ages as well, um, you know, people hiring from even high school. So SWE now has clubs in high schools, and we have such great response from the young girls wanting to learn, wanting some hands-on activity, partnering with FIRST Robotics. So that is, that is a great way for us to get involved in the next generation and prepare them for industry. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I, I do want to mention, you know, I was surprised that, you know, at this day and age, you can start coding as soon as you start reading. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I've had the opportunity with um, with Tech Girls and, and some of the other um, young girl programs. And, and, and even within FIRST, we focus on, um, you know, having young girl teams and being able to look at people of color teams, you know, we want to promote. And the the six-week build time that they have from kit of parts to a fully functioning robot that can compete, all those skill sets and the design, the agile thinking, the fundraising, the marketing, the business planning, all those skills would fit very nicely into a work environment today without having to you know, necessarily, because they'll be learning through that process in a team, they'll be able to contribute to the company right away. And I think that's what you're seeing when companies are saying, don't want to wait till you finish college, want to hire you now. So co-ops and summer internships, these these resources are getting exposure in these corporate environments early on uh, that didn't exist before. And so, you know, they can really begin to contribute hitting the ground running by you know, participating in those programs. All right. So finally, this is Black History Month. It's February. Who is your historical Black figure that inspires you and why? So I would say Sojourner Truth. And I'll tell you, many years ago, um, I had the opportunity while I was working with Motorola to participate in a program at the Chicago Historical Society, and it was called the Sojourner Truth Program. And what we did is we focused on a nine-week program of young girls between the age of 14 and 17 from, you know, low-income families. And we spent every weekend, every Saturday with them for hours working through, you know, life lessons, you know, how to show up as a young lady, you know, basically teaching them you know, how to engage in the world that, you know, no one's really had taken the time to do that. And we based the whole program on Brian Lankard's uh, book, uh, which was a photo book 
of 75 Women Who Changed uh, America. And we were able to actually get some of the, the photo candidates to show up, like Oprah and Nikki Giovanni, you know, and some of the others. And you know, when they graduated, you know, we gave up our, you know, at that time it was prom dresses and if we were in weddings, <laughs> you know, wedding, wedding uh, garments. But we had an official graduation with them. We taught them about, you know, their rights and, you know, understanding how to be a, a young lady in, in this coming world. And, and for me, that just stayed with me, uh, especially because Sojourner Truth is a, you know, women's rights activist, you know. And so you, you think about, you know, if she wasn't around at that time, you know, what kind of rights would we have as women? Um, you know, and, and I, I just feel that that program, you know, cemented for me the historical nature of, you know, what she was trying to do for young women. And I had the privilege with 30 other young, you know, black engineers, women in the community in Chicago to participate in that for nine weeks and see the fruits of that to the point where, you know, I got to hang out with Oprah, you know, <laughs> I got pictures, <laughs> you know, it was a big deal, you know, so it, it really resonated with me. And, uh, you know, when I think of Black History Month, I think about how far we've come, you know, in civil rights and, and, and you know, women's rights. And uh, she sticks out for me. Great. Thank you for sharing that. So we've had a really great time. Is there anything else you wanted to add before we went? Yeah, I, I would I would add this one thing for for Society of Women Engineers. You know, be inclusive. I'm so glad that we have the affinity groups. I remember even, you know, as a, a leader in, in SWE, uh, there's talk of being able to make that happen and to see that kind of growth over these last 20 years and to be able to do something like this um, is, you know, a real testimony to the evolution of SWE. And I just hope for, you know, many more years of it being a community for women in technology, um, in engineering and scientists, uh, so that, you know, we can, you know, build and support each other through this, you know, evolution that we're all experiencing, you know, in our lives. So I think SWE's at the right point in time, enabling that to happen. And, you know, I congratulate the leadership for continuing to make that, you know, a mission as part of SWE. Wow. Thank you so much. This has been truly enlightening, impactful, insightful, and I'm just glad you made the time out to do this podcast with us. So, Sharita, thank you again for taking the time to speak with us this Black History Month, for providing insights, for providing inspiration for our current and future engineers and leaders. I am Brala Dare, and for all of us at SWE, thank you for listening. Thank you.